Hi, friends. Join us as we dive into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We are your hosts, Leah, Sarah, Tabby, and whether you're a new viewer or a longtime fan, welcome to Becoming Buffy. Hey guys, welcome back to Becoming Buffy. Today we are on season four, episode eight, Pangs, and we have a special guest with us. We have Alexandra, who you guys might remember. She popped in for about 15 minutes in our spoiler section for graduation day last year. And we just loved her so much that we decided to have her on again. And here she is. Thanks for coming, Alexandra. Thanks for having me, ladies. Really excited to be here. We are so excited to have you, and I know we DM'd back and forth, but I asked you, I think I went through like a list of episodes that we had available, and this is one of the ones that we landed on, and you know, we <laughs> talked back and forth about how this is kind of an interesting episode to talk about. There's a lot of um, problematic stuff. There's yeah. a lot of controversy <laughs> surrounding the episode, but I'm honestly like really thrilled that you're here because I think that you have such good insight and I'm really excited to hear like your thoughts on it. And it's always just nice to have an extra person around to give their thoughts on something that is so controversial, you know? Oh yeah. I, I love talking about the controversial shit, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> Yes, but, I figured yeah. you would be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest with you guys. Like, I chose this episode because my man is in it. So, um, but after I chose the episode, I was like, oh, God. <laughs> this episode really is a hidden gem. Like, as far as, like, Angel and Buffy's it is like, a, relationship. It's hilarious. It, it's a yes, hilarious episode yes. if you just ignore you know, some of the stuff. Yes. Yeah. Insensitive and racist, but, um, yes. yeah, yeah. A lot of stuff written about this episode, like so much is written on this episode. It's a bit overwhelming, but, um, it's pretty normal for Buffy to be thought provoking. So there's always essays on all the episodes. So yeah. And hopefully, hopefully we can kind of do it justice. Hopefully we can talk about some things. And I just want to preface, I mean, none of us are truly qualified to talk about, mm-hmm. Um, what has happened with colonialism and indigenous people. And so if this was any other show, we would not be talking about it. But because it's a part of Buffy, you know, I think it is important to talk about specifically for the characters. But I do want to say that like, by no means are we the authority on this, that Mm -hmm. I highly recommend checking out what indigenous people and Native Americans have to say about things like this, specifically the Shumash tribe, which is highly interesting in just the few things that I've looked up about them. Um, But we are going to try and talk about things from our perspective, try to talk a little bit about what some of the prevailing Buffy voices have said about the episode, uh, critics, things like that. And then, you know, let's, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the the problematic things that happen this episode and hopefully also enjoy ourselves and still have fun with what is probably one of the funnier episodes of season four, ironically. So mm-hmm. it's Jane Espenson, you know? 
<laughs> oh, it totally is. I mean, yeah, Jane Espenson rocks every single one of her episodes. And it's funny too, because she was writing episodes over on um, Angel. Angel as well, yeah. which is crazy. And it is kind of crazy because when you think about the tone of this episode, it's it's very dark. There's also like a lot in it, like when you see like uh, the priest is like hanging and yeah. then like the other person yeah. who gets their throat slit. I was like, wow, this is like really dark I was waiting for, for that. I would never seen anything like that. And yeah. the fact that we have it on an episode where they're talking about like Native Americans and all that stuff, it's so like, horrible. Whoa. It was like, it was a lot. And then it was like, yeah. but then it was like you flip scenes and Buffy's like joking about Thanksgiving. I was like, there's a lot going on. It's yeah. actually interesting that you guys bring that up because I wrote, um, I read a really good article um, actually discussing the tone specifically and how it is um, actually a masterclass in the way it manages its tone. Is that Rhonda Wilcox? Yes, I, I have that. all my notes are for that. Okay, good. We're going to go back and forth. Yeah, no, I, I took so many things from that. Um, but it's true. But it's the fact that it jumps around so much, but it's well done. And like, yes. also the cuts and the transitions in this episode are just like, so funny Agreed. and so well mm -hmm. done. Um, so it's like, Actually, uh, Jane Espenson said that Joss had a hand in like writing the final two acts. Like he did a lot of rewrites, but um, I still think that Jane's, you know, style is very, you know, evident in the episode. Totally. All right. So written by Jane Espenson, directed by Michael Lange, aired November 23rd, 1999. This episode was touted as a Buffy and Angel two-hour crossover event, which should tell you everything right there. Um, and it is unfortunate, but this episode really does serve – like its main purpose is kind of to be a teaser for the next episode. I think it accomplishes a few other things as well. But it, as far as a crossover – it really is just to kind of prep you for the next episode, which if you know, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. I also just want to say I think it was very intentional to give Angel the meteor episode because yes. they're trying to, you know, make their show successful. They're trying to piggyback off of the success of Buffy. So I get it. Yeah. But at the same time, I didn't know that, you know, Sarah Michelle Geller was in any of Angel. And I didn't even know about Angel for same, several years after. Same. So finding yes. out that there were two full episodes uh -huh. that I hadn't seen of Angel scenes, I was like, and then of course, I can't say what actually happens, but what you do get is insane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yep. we no, can't say I anything agree. more. Sarah's going to cover it. <laughs> <laughs> Which, speaking of Investigating Angel, next week we are covering the crossover, I Will Remember You, over on Investigating Angel. And Tabby and Leo will be joining us over there for that episode. So if you Listen guys have it. If you guys have not checked it out, next week would be a really good time to do that. It's so. a good episode to start on if you're coming from Buffy and mm -hmm. you have no like – experience with Angel, it's a good episode to start on because it will grab your attention. That it will. That it will. <laughs> so both this week and next week are going to be pretty big weeks for both Becoming Buffy and Investigating Angel. Um, even though I Will Remember You is technically an Angel episode, since Tabby and Leah and I are going to be recording over there 
it is going to become our 100th episode that we've ever uploaded, which feels pretty appropriate because it's I Will Remember You. So in order to kind of commemorate that and celebrate with you guys, we're going to be hosting a giveaway, both Becoming Buffy and Investigating Angel, on our Instagram accounts. And it is going live today, October 26th, when this episode airs. So head on over there. We're giving away a Buffy and Angel print from one of our favorite scenes on I Will Remember You. It's custom made and I absolutely adore it. So head on over there, enter that giveaway. Also next week on November 2nd at 7.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, Investigating Angel will be hosting a live rewatch party on our Discord. We are going to be watching I Will Remember You and we're inviting you guys to come watch along with us. If you would love to do that and be a part of that, you can DM us on Instagram. You can also email us becomingbuffypodcast at gmail.com or investigatingangelpodcast at gmail.com. Bring your tissues. It's going to be sad. It's going to be fun. It's going to be all the things. And then that's not all. The next day on the day that I will remember you drop, so November 3rd, that's a week from this Thursday, we are going to be hosting a live on our Instagram accounts. We're going to be doing a live Buffy and Angel trivia night at 7.30 p.m. Central Standard Time as well. We're going to be giving away prizes. We're going to be talking about Buffy. We're going to be talking about Angel, the shows, all that stuff. It's going to be so much fun. So I hope to see you guys there. I know that's a lot of information, but as always, you can email us or DM us for more information. So Alexandra kind of touched on this, but Buffy scholar Rhonda Wilcox has written a massive essay talking specifically on the tone of this episode, which I feel like if there was any topic to pick for this episode tone was the perfect one because I'll I'll be honest when I first watched it I was kind of like ah oh, I don't know if I like the tone I feel like it's being kind of glib and flippant on something that is so dark and such a big deal um, and that's something that I think is more of a personal thing for me like I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Jojo Rabbit. But I really struggled with that for me personally because I was like, it's Nazis and Germany and they're talking about all this horrendous stuff and they're treating it – It's very bold. But I'm learning to appreciate that there is a purpose and a place for those types of things and that they are purposely meant to make you feel uncomfortable and they're supposed to contrast the heavy and the dark with the more light to to kind of like make it more impactful in a way. Um, I think it can be done well. I think it can be done not well. So this episode – I had to kind of just take a step back and be like, okay, why does this make me uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. go from there? So Rhonda says, it is unquestionably one of the most controversial episodes of Buffy. It is also one of Buffy creator Joss Whedon's declared favorites. As Espenson said- Are you joking? Okay. (laughs) Let me finish why. (laughs) Let me finish why. I don't think it's like it's his favorite because he's like, ha, 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 you know, kill indigenous people. I don't think that's what Joss has in mind. It wasn't his motivation at all. It it wasn't actually based off of everything I researched. He's still a terrible person, but that, that wasn't what his motivation were. Um, yes, I agree. And um, Espenson says the core of it was something Joss had wanted to do for a long time, which is have a dead Indian at Thanksgiving, which is a poetic illustration. I think that we do kind of live in this country by virtue of some very ugly conquest. 
Um, so th- I'm going to kind of go through a couple of like the articles and some of the criticism from several different people because I think that it is good to kind of give an ear to the different criticisms for this episode. So Sally Emons Featherston comments that it stands out from other Buffy episodes for dealing with the issue of race. Its moral complexity is symbolized by Buffy's initial appearance in a black hat, traditionally the sign of a Western villain, which we will talk about in a second. Um, the program makes several references to the Western genre. The episode was, however, criticized in the Truth of Buffy essays on fictional illuminating reality for stereotyping Native Americans, particularly Shumashes, who actually have a complex culture, while the Shumash warrior is portrayed here as speaking in a highly cliched way. The AV Club called it an outrageously entertaining episode, noting that many funny moments, but also the complex moral debate over the Native American evil, in quotations. Persephone Magazine called it the start of a run of three excellent episodes, including Something Blue and Hush. And then we get into a little bit more of like the meteor criticism. So Dominic Alessio, and a lot of this, a lot of these quotes and stuff are from um, Rhonda Wilcox's essay. So highly, it's free online if you guys are really interested in reading it. But Dominic Alessio in 2001 sounded the first major note in the debate on Pangs with his condemnation of the episode as essentially colonialist. In 2003, Gregory Stevenson in his book Televised Morality acknowledged the controversial nature of Pangs. His book emphasized the importance of seeing the ethical meaning of a series through its long-term narrative, and he argues for Pangs, saying that while both the colonizers and the indigenous people used violence, Buffy, in his declared Christian view, represents moving on to forgiveness because of the fact that she and the Scoobies take in both the ex-demon Anya and the vampire Spike, and vampires and demons can represent oppressed, demonized peoples. Um, J. Michael Richardson, J. Douglas Rabb acknowledged Stevenson and further emphasized the fact that Buffy as a televised series will have done a great deal to bring to light the atrocities inflicted on Native Americans by the colonizers. And they talk about how like that happens even more than the books that Willow has. Um, and Giles even argues and says, oh, the books are fine. Like We just need to read history books to see what actually happens in history. Why do we need to have all this extra stuff? And the show kind of says, hey, books aren't enough. I feel like this episode deals with the American exceptionalism in a lot of ways Mm. um, where Willow is kind of like, why, like, why aren't we being taught these things? And he's, you know, Giles says, well, they're in the books. That's enough. But it's like the way, I mean, when I was growing up, Thanksgiving was only seen as a positive thing and they didn't really talk because they basically in school, they're teaching you only, you know, either the good parts of what um, Americans do Mm-hmm. And they kind of just totally ignore the terrible things that we do, or they take bad things and paint it in a new way and they put it in a mm-hmm. new light. And mm-hmm. that's what they do with Thanksgiving. So, um, agreed. I don't, yeah. yeah. So I feel like it's kind of crazy this episode because at the time it was like forward thinking and progressive, Super but forward thinking, now yes. it's like, oh my God, this is very insensitive and racist. Sure. But back then, yeah. like, I can't even – I don't even know how this even got greenlit because – I don't either, honestly. I'm like – not because it's racist, but because it is saying things that we aren't really even taught about in schools. Like you have to go out yeah. of your way to educate yourself yeah. on Thanksgiving and everything that happened with it, you know? So it's kind of yeah. crazy. I was like, how did this get greenlit? You know what this episode like makes me feel like? And I don't even really watch The opposite Office. But you know the episode of The Office where they're having like the training on like um, – Sexual uh, harassment. Like, sexual no, harassment. Sexual? I think it was sexual harassment or it was like diversity training. 
And, <laughs> like and the second and episode. Like, yeah. The whole the whole episode is like <laughs> It's like, oh, like, am I a woman? <laughs> yeah, it's like like it's where like Michael comes in and he's like trying to be the stereotypical like racial types. Mm-hmm. And it's like that's what this episode gives me. Is like someone who's like trying to be really like in it and like woke and like all this stuff and it's just someone who is just very ignorant and just should not be the one talking about it. That's what this episode feels like to me. Also, when you think about Thanksgiving episodes that we were given at the time, look at Friends. They celebrate Thanksgiving mm-hmm. every year. Never a mention of really, mm-hmm. you know, the dark history mm-hmm. of the holiday. I mean, Xander mm-hmm. hates the holiday, but for his own personal reasons. And Phoebe, I think, I think she... You mean Chandler? I, um, I can't remember. Did I say? You I said mean, Xander. Phoebe. Oh, did I say Xander? Yeah. Oh my god, that's so embarrassing. Um, but they <laughs> are like the same. So, but I think Phoebe may mention something one time about the fact that Thanksgiving is. I think so. Yeah. Pretty messed yeah. up, but for the most part, it's like, yeah. oh, it's Thanksgiving. It's they always have like really funny Thanksgiving episodes, but it's like you're not mm-hmm. given media that challenges Mm -hmm. what Thanksgiving is about or makes people even aware. And actually my mom, I I told you guys, she's watching the show for the first time. She said something funny to me when she watched this episode, she was like, is that how you learned about Thanksgiving from this episode? And I was like, mom, I don't remember, but um, probably not. But I feel like it maybe made other people question what Thanksgiving really is about. So it's thought provoking in that way. Yes, totally. And that's what some of the critics say. Like some critics are saying that, you know, it's a highly misguided patronizing attempt to discuss cultural relativism within Buffy. Um, But then someone else says that the show sympathizes with the view that treatment of the indigenous has been shameful, but a lot of times that doesn't come across very well because of how they typecast the Native Americans in the episode. Um, So it's just really interesting just reading and seeing like all the different ways that people interpret and read this episode. Um, And then Whedon himself, he said that Pangs is to me among the most radical and potentially offensive and necessary messages we ever played. American history has fictionalized itself and in an attempt to deconstruct it, we find ourselves repeating it. So then Rhonda Wilcox says this, and I and she's talking about the tone of the episode. She says, Pangs is a problem play, not a solution play. The problem of the U.S. passed with Native Americans is certainly not sorted out in this 48-minute television show, and the lesson to humanity and the depiction of the Shumash Huss does not help, nor does his demise. But the narrative of Pangs is more troubling if we do not attend to these touches of tone conveyed in dialogue, music, and visual patterns. And the very ending of the episode and its tone remind us of the weakness of our hero. Thus, the show as a whole may remind us why the problem is not solved. Throughout the episode, Buffy is barely, if at all, conscious of the outsiders looking at her through the window. She is caught up in her very human desire for comfort and sustenance, both emotional and physical, and she's holding on to a past that was never there. And then they talk about how, like, if we pay attention to the subtle tones and the shifts of pangs, then it's possible that we're actually going to be able to do something with the information that pangs gives us instead of just sitting there and being like, okay, yeah, that was a problem, but can't fix that now and just move on with our lives. And so I think that at the very least, pangs brings up uncomfortable and um, really painful things and challenges us to do better and to move forward. And I think for that alone, it's worth it 
you know, even, even though there, there may be some problematic things in it, not justifying it. But I do think there are some things that are worth noting in the episode. I think if you're, if art is thought provoking, then it's doing its job. So yes, obviously 100%. this, this makes you think of a lot of things. It's, I'm sure people watch this and they feel, you know, offended and hurt by it. And then other people maybe watch it and they think, oh, what is Thanksgiving about? I really do wonder if, because it is definitely thought provoking, I wonder if the reasoning behind why Joss wanted to do it, if it was because it was shocking and like thought provoking and new for the time, or if it was Mm. because it was something that was genuinely on sure. his mind because that was the whole scheme of like him With being feminism. a feminist and yeah. no, he's a huge show. hypocrite yeah and yeah. so i wonder if it was like uh oh mm. like i i want to do this because i i believe in the cause or if it's oh no one else really talks about this so i'm gonna do it because it's shocking and new honestly his um original idea for the episode and he said it didn't even uh jane actually says that joss didn't even need it to be a buffy episode specifically he just wanted an episode about this the actual idea for the episode was a lot more uh, out there. And Jane kind of reeled it in, um, whether that be because the network said you can't do this or what, but his like original concept, I feel like was a was more for shock value and them kind of reining it in makes it still, you know, risky to do. But I can see why the WB would have been like, Actually, you know what? The WB was so conservative, so who knows? Like, they're so inconsistent with what they greenlit and what they don't. Yeah, and I, w- I won't read the rest of uh, Rhonda Wilcox's thing about tone, at least in the beginning. I have more quotes later. Um, but she talks about how when we come to watch a Buffy episode, it's not like watching pretty much any other form of entertainment, at least in that time, is we watch it because, like Tabby's mentioned, we like to peel back the layers. We like to look at it and be like, all right, let's go deeper. And so I think because of that, Whedon and Espenson knew they could write something that was a little more subtle in tone because the viewers are going to be able to sit here and pick up on that stuff. Um, and this, for me, this is this is my own personal view, and I'm still kind of like sorting through it. But I think when it comes to subject matter, like the colonization and the slaughtering of indigenous people and all that stuff, um, same as I feel about violence and abuse and all that stuff, I feel like the more subtler metaphors are not as effective and are often um, can get you into some really great areas because it's too easy for people to sometimes not think critically and to misinterpret. And then you end up having much worse of a problem. So in my mind, even though I appreciate the layers, I think for an episode with this subject matter, it would have been a lot better if they had been possibly a little bit more um, obvious. And also if they obviously wouldn't have stereotyped the indigenous people, you know, but that's my own personal thoughts on it. I feel like the episode does an interesting job of showing a bunch of different perspectives. You got, you know what I'm saying? Like you have Buffy kind of in the middle and then you have Willow who's on the opposite side of the spectrum than, uh, Mm -hmm. Giles and Spike. And then you have Xander just, you know, having syphilis and dying, which is always fun. (laughs) Um, So I think the episode does a good job of showing all the different perspectives. But you have to wonder, you know, are they – you can't have a discussion like this in in this limited time. You know, you can't. Um, So 
it's kind of like you want to give them their flowers for trying, but then you also want to give them some thorns because you're like, did you have to stereotype? Did you have, you know, it's like, so I agree. All right. So I think that we can all say that the biggest issue of this episode is the stereotypes um, and the fact that it portrays the Native Americans as the monster of the week, and at least the physical sense. Um, Something that I never caught until this episode is that Huss is not supposed to be a physical person. He's actually supposed to be just the literal manifestation of vengeance of the Shumash people. And I think if you view it through that lens, it makes some of the choices that they had, like the very violent deaths and things like that, it's supposed to be a representation of vengeance. So that makes more sense. However, it's like, why do we have to portray them as either animals and spirits or like super violent? Because it just, it kind of feeds into that stereotype. So I think that is probably the most problematic part. I think my main issue is that, you know, the Native Americans and the Shumash tribe, they are, you know, sometimes anger and revenge is justified. And I think that's where you kind of get Willow's perspective a little bit. But it's the fact that, you know, they were wronged, right? And now this episode is making them the bad guy for the fact that they're upset that they were wronged. So Mm -hmm. it's just kind of like, why? (laughs) The episode doesn't say, oh, their anger is like a good thing. Instead, it lumps anger and vengeance together, which vengeance can Mm -hmm. get really sticky and tricky. And the show has always landed on the vengeance is not okay, like it can corrupt. Um, And so I think by mixing those two together, it creates a really sticky situation where it's like, well, obviously then they're the bad guys. We have to shut that down. Instead of saying like, hey, maybe their anger is justified even if their vengeance is not. And it also just seems so hypocritical when you have characters like Spike Angel and Anya all in this episode. Like Anya being a vengeance demon. Spike literally like three episodes ago, like trying to kill everyone. It just seems a little hypocritical when it's like half the characters aren't even seeing the Native Americans' point of view. They're just Well, that's that that's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. The show wrote that in there. It's not necessarily hypocritical. I don't but it doesn't translate though. It does if you think about it. If it does if you actually go into it. Yeah. But I understand what you're saying. Like, why do we have to think so hard about something? Why is it not obvious? And I think for this subject matter, it should be obvious. Putting something like that inside an episode where honestly, people are going to be more focused on the fact that like Spike is with the Scoobies and Angel sure. is back. And it's and right. it's more of a I mean, we all said it, like this episode is more so a catalyst for the next Angel episode. It just kind of feels disrespectful. Makes it even worse. Yeah. Yes. It it's it like we, we won't 100%. even give you a full episode. We're just going to give you an episode that is really only meant to be a reason to have Angel there. Like, and it just Spike. Is a little, They're yeah, trying to Spike. shoehorn Spike exactly. into the Scoobies. And so it's yeah. just, it's, it just is so disrespectful in my opinion. I agree. All right. So before we jump into the episode, I'm going to talk about the actual Shumash people real fast because I feel like we've talked a lot about how problematic this episode is and its portrayal of them. And I feel like we should actually take a minute and find out who these actual people are. Um, The actual Shumash people were entrenched along the California coast, um, portions of what is now San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, Ventura, and LA counties from Morro Bay to Malibu was all of their, their, their territory, their country. Oh, no way. Their land. That's yeah, like kind of right cool. Us. Yeah. Yes, which is really cool because the three of us grew up in LA and a lot of these places like I I honeymooned in San Luis Obispo mm-hmm. like I yeah, went to Morro cool. Bay this past summer. 
Yeah. I've gone like the past three summers in a row. Originally, they numbered as many as 20,000 people before contact with Europeans and Spaniards. The tribe survives today as the Santa Ynez Band of Chumash, which has U.S. recognition as a Native American tribe and controls a reservation and casino in Santa Ynez, California. Um, Believe it or not, modern places that have names that like derive from Chumash origins include Malibu, Nipomo, Lompoc, Ojai, Pismo Beach, Point Magoo, Lake Castake, Satakoy, Simi Valley, and Somis, which is kind of crazy. Like a lot of those places like our mom- Simi Valley is like literally right where Tabby and I are. Yeah. That's where our mother grew up. So it's kind of crazy seeing some of these names of places that I know. Like I used to drive by Lake Castake all the time. Um, Like these are places that used to be owned by the tribe. Um, The name Shumash means bead maker or seashell people, being that they originated near the Santa Barbara coast. Their land was actually one of the most resource abundant places on the planet because they were right next to the coast. So they had all of the um, fish, all the sea stuff coming in there. And then they also, because it's very, obviously it's very nice weather because it's California, they were able to grow a lot of crops and they were regularly burning their fields like every few seasons and stuff because burning it helps bring like nutrients back in the soil and gives the the ground a rest and stuff. Um, due to disease brought by the Spaniards, um, by 1900, their numbers had dwindled from 20,000 to 200, which is insanity. That is so many people. Today, there's estimated to be between 2,000 to 5,000 people left, but sadly, no native Shumash speak their own language since Mary Yee, the last Barbarano speaker, she died in 1965, so they do not speak their own language anymore because it's lost. That's that that is so sad. And it's actually believed that um, the Polynesian people actually made their way to their coast. Like we all think of uh, Moana, like where they were explorers and sailed. They, a lot of people believe that the Polynesian people actually made it to the Santa Barbara coast before the Spaniards and Europeans even touched down. And like, because a lot of their boats and canoes are seen in the Chumash tribe, which is kind of cool. So all in all, like when you research and look them up, just a beautiful, beautiful people who were very peaceful, lived in their land, and they really had a wonderful culture. And it's just – it's heartbreaking, honestly, like when you look and see the things that they used to paint and carve and like the seashells and the nets and everything that they used to do and just think like how sad it is that just got all wiped out. But I'm glad that I was able to learn a little bit more about them through the episode. So I'm thankful for that. All right, let's jump into the episode now that we've, you know, 32 minutes of conversation about introduction. (laughs) Hey, I mean, honestly, if nothing else, that should show you how much should have been said in this episode that wasn't talked about. If we can talk about it like casually for 30 minutes – there should have been more in this episode about it. All right. So this this cold opening, uh, this is one of my favorites. It's everything that you love about the show in the subversion of this like guy walking and he's like scared of something and who pops out of the shadows. It's Buffy. Like it's just amazing. I love it. Their fighting was so entertaining. It was really well choreographed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the last Angel episode, Bachelor Party, Doyle has a vision of Buffy in danger, which is why Angel is here. And it's of this scene of Buffy fighting this vampire specifically, which is really odd because nothing really happens here that Buffy needs help with. And it's like a normal – Yeah. <laughs> it is like the most like innocuous like, vampire. And she kills him within five seconds, but Doyle's like, yeah, she's in danger. It's like Buffy's always in yeah, danger. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is another Tuesday. <laughs> Dawn's in danger. It, it is really interesting though. We immediately – it sets the tone for the episode or kind of like 
gives us a clue on how they're going to view Buffy through the episode. So uh, the vampire says, why don't you just go back to where you came from? Things were great before you came. We ruled this campus. You've ruined everything. And so in this episode, vampires are kind of put in the same boat as the indigenous people in the sense that they're outsiders. They are the the people that are being hunted by the colonizers, the initiative in this sense, and Buffy. Um, so that immediately tells you that, okay, they're going to be painting Buffy as kind of more of the oppressor, which is really interesting. I think it's ridiculous, but and it's just so <laughs> But yeah, no, it's definitely a choice for sure. <laughs> I think I'm not I'm not a huge fan of them making the vampires to be like, oh my gosh, look at the poor oppressed vampires. I do Because vampires a, are literally evil. They're right? evil, yes. Like, I hundred percent agree with they're, that. They're they're seeking out their own demise. Yeah. Like, yeah. I agree with that. I think I'm more like that they put Buffy in the position of maybe not more morally gray, where you have Buffy who starts off the episode being very sure of where she stands on this all. And then as the episode goes on, she's like, oh, she comes to face with her own, like with her own people's past and has to kind of address that. And I think it's very bold to put Buffy in that uncomfortable situation. Yeah. And um, I also, you know, we've spent a lot of season four so far with Buffy being down and, you know, depressed. Um, and I like that she seems confident and strong in this scene. I love that Angel sees her quipping and, you know, confident. Moving and, on and happy and, yes, yeah. or semi-happy. My favorite thing, of course, is that she can sense him, that he's yes. there. Yes. Best part. Same. Oh, I love that detail of it. I also love that like she's wearing clothes that we would see her wear in season three. We haven't really seen her wear the leather jacket. She's wearing – she's very dressed down. I know the leather. And then with the jeans is a nice pair of where she's at in her life right now. I love that the show knows its history, you know, um, with Buffy being Mm -hmm. able to sense Angel. We see this, you know, all the way in the the episode Angel in season one. Yeah. And we see it in Graduation Day Part 2, and then we see it here, and we might see it other places, too. Who Mm -hmm. knows? But um, I just – I love that this is built into their relationship. It's just – because as we know, Buffy cannot hone, to quote Giles. Um, She she only recognizes vampires as vampires, mostly by the fact that she's hunting for them, but also because of their fashion. Like with Faith, she when she was dancing with that vampire in Faith, Hope, and Trick, she knew because of his clothes. She knew about, uh, what was it, the first episode, Welcome to the Hellmouth. Mm-hmm. She spotted him because of his clothes. So she cannot really sense vampires. She didn't really get that. Um, but she can sense Angel, and I don't think it's because he's a vampire. It's clearly not because he's a vampire. It's, it's because yeah. of their connection. I won't get into it because it's a lot. But it's just beautiful. I love it. <laughs> it, Yeah. It's one of my favorite things about their relationship. It's very cool. Every time he comes back, you're like, yes, here it is. Like, it's just like, oh, I feel you inside. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's just like so sweet. Like, it's just like, I, I feel like it's the difference between like hugging someone you love and just like giving like a random stranger like a hug. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, like, hi, nice to meet you. I'm hugging you. And like hugging someone you love. Like, they're both like hugs, but like. One just like feels different. Yeah. So um, Wilcox, uh, that's Rhonda B. Wilcox, I believe. She says the significance of the relationship is re-emphasized by the fact that Buffy seems to somehow recognize that she's being watched. 
as she does repeatedly during the episode when he watches her. Her awareness lessens the suggestion of weakness on her part and heightens the suggestion of connection. Not only the knowledge of their past, but also Angel's face in the dark, the music, and Buffy's reaction contribute to the seriousness of the tone. I like that she's pointing out that it's not because, you know, Buffy's just unaware of her surroundings. It's because she has a connection, a deep connection with Angel, and she feels that connection again. And it's something that happens throughout the episode. And, you know, Jane Espenson, she's kind of a mixed bag when it comes to Buffy and Angel. But um, I agree. <laughs> I love that they, that she put that in there. Thank you, Jane. Love you. Not really, but thank you. <laughs> We love you in this this episode. We love this singular instance. Yes. <laughs> right. All right. So we see Buffy, Willow, and Anya. The college is opening up a new cultural center, and we have the dean, and we have the curator giving like this very like inflated speech about, you know, we're so proud of this. We're breaking ground today, all this stuff. Anya is completely distracted because, okay, Xander, he is looking pretty good in that tank top. And I know, okay, I know Josh, isn't it like in season five, he tells Nicholas Brendan to stop working out so much because he was looking too buff as I believe Xander. it's season four, actually. I think it's okay. this season. It's a little weird to watch Sander be so buff and be like, oh, but he's supposed to be like the weird nerdy guy. Like, it's- But I also I also feel like it's kind of a stupid stereotype. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> it's just dumb. Like if, if an actor is starting to work out or like whatever, like trust me, it does not affect how I feel about Xander. Like <laughs> I really feel like it's fine. Xander yeah. could look – Xander could be David Boreanaz and I still wouldn't like him. Like his character, no legit. Like he could be the finest person I've ever seen. I still would be like. I mean, we have Spike. Like I don't dislike him. He's attractive, but like there are moments where I'm like, agree to disagree. (laughs) 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 I think I think Spike is really funny. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) He has a great personality. (laughs) Not even. Not even. Okay. Anyway, this is not about that. All right, so Anya's drooling all over him. Buffy and Willow are like, okay, not at all. Not what we're thinking. Um, And okay, I want to talk about their outfits. The intentionality behind the outfits of what they're wearing in this this particular scene kind of immediately sets the tone for where they're going moving forward. Buffy's wearing that cowboy hat. Looks like a leather skirt. Willow looks like she should be on the prairie with her skirt. And then Anya looks like she's wearing like chaps with her vest. It's very Western American. And I was immediately like, oh, okay, this is uncomfortable. This makes me like, this is just not good. But reading Rhonda Wilcox's thing about like the idea that not only is Buffy wearing a cowboy hat, which is intentional, it's a literal black hat. And the show has often talked about like black hats versus white hats. And so I think the framing and the staging of it is to kind of immediately set you up for Buffy and Willow and Z- and Anya, not Xander, but I guess Xander too, because he got syphilis. Um, they are not necessarily going to be in the right in this episode, in in the sense that like versus the indigenous people. And I thought that was that was really interesting. And it's also interesting because uh, Jane Espenson wrote this scene not knowing that Buffy was going to be wearing a cowboy hat. So oh, um, that's true. Yeah, yeah, because like it's a cowboy hat, right? Like I literally have in my notes cowboy hat and a bunch of exclamation points because it, it stands this is the out. episode she wears one only yeah. one and you know obviously with the subject matter it feels intentional yes. but it's not which is kind of crazy according to jane espenson anyway she said 
that I think it was Sarah, our queen. Um, she wanted to wear the hat. I'm pretty sure in my research, I found that. So mm. um, interesting. Jane only found out after the fact. So it's really interesting. Again, tone is so important in this moment. So we have, you know, the curator talking about like, you know, this is groundbreaking and, you know, it's so soon before Thanksgiving, it's a melting pot, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff is happening. And then they pan over and they have a shot of four students on the bleachers. And one of them is their token Asian guy who we know to be Joe. He's the guy that we saw being feasted on in um, The Harsh Light of Day. He's also the guy in Earshot. He shows up in a couple of episodes and stuff. Um, as a background character. But this episode is very subtle in its messaging because you have the car alarm that goes off at the same time, the students' facial expressions. It's very clear that this message is very tone deaf and it's not translating well over to the audience and it's supposed to be portrayed as tone deaf. Also, I think it's interesting that Willow's mom is mentioned. You know, yes, we never write about her. <laughs> I know. I'm like, what the? I'm like, Willow's a mom? Yeah, right. I just choose to ignore her. She triggers me. The hard part for me in this episode is no matter how good of a job this episode does in portraying the evils of slaughtering indigenous people and taking their land, it's ruined by the way people of color are portrayed on this show. And I think that specifically the the show or the script refers to or has referred to Joe as literally Asian Joe. So he's kind of like their token Asian person that they put inside of the script. Um, And it's just like really – it's just sad that you have to write that in there. Like, okay, make sure we have our minority representation in this episode. And it's like, why are we not like making a, more of an attempt to have this in every aspect of the show, you know? Mm-hmm. So Willow goes off on her um, soapbox and is like, Thanksgiving isn't about blending cultures. It's about one culture wiping out another. Then they make animated specials about it. Just basically saying like Thanksgiving has been glossed over and minimized for all of this. And Bobby's like, I guess I never thought about it this way. She mentions that her mom went to her Aunt Darlene's this year, which I believe they mentioned their Aunt Darlene back in Consequences when Buffy got into, I think it was Southwestern, which is in Oregon. I'm Northwestern. Sure. Northwestern. That's what it is. Okay. Um, also, it's kind of sad that Buffy didn't go with her mom to uh, be with I her I was aunt. thinking that. I, know, I thought about that. I'm like, why wouldn't Joyce just take her? Yeah. I think because the message of the episode is – a. And a lot of, okay, so there's a lot of articles. I actually stumbled across an article called An Ode to Pangs. And people find this episode very comforting and heartwarming because it's about, you know, found family in a lot of ways. Like they found each other. They made their own family. And that's why I think Willow mentioning her mom is specifically Mm -hmm. interesting because Mm -hmm. that shows you the distance that she has from her family and that Buffy and Giles and Xander and begrudgingly Anya are her family. You know, she chose them. She found them. So um, I think that's very interesting. I feel like it's not just Willow that feels the found family, but I feel like it's Xander. We know he has a bad family life, but also Buffy because on so many levels, her mom cannot relate to what she does as a slayer that like, Giles is like her found father and then it's like you have like Xander and Willow that really she connects with on a family level that I feel like all of them are supposed to represent that for each other. I have to say that in an episode where the theme is found family, um Angel is there. Um <laughs> and whether or not they don't see each other, whether or not they don't see each other, he'll always be a part of her and she'll always know. So that's my favorite Absolutely. take so far, Tabs. Well done. Well done. 
Thank you. I will say, um, like when I was younger, when I would watch this episode, I would always zone out during this scene. Um, I found it because <laughs> I was just thinking, where's Angel? Where is he at? What's going on? Like, right. what's he doing? What's he up to? Yeah. So it's kind of a long scene, too, because of all the dialogue. All right. So Xander digs into the ground, ends up falling through, which I was like, okay, I'm not an expert. I know it's necessary for the plot, but that's really close to the surface. And they knew the old mission was there, as we find out later in the episode. Did they not like- You also have to test like land and dirt and yeah. all that before you start construction on it. So I'm like, how the frick did that- And when you're get? walking Wouldn't on it, it feel you hollow? Know hollow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you just ignore the syphilis, I think Xander actually has a lawsuit on his hand. Like for real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I was thinking that I was like, dang, Xander, milk that for all his word, right? <laughs> so now we're back to the woods. Angel's walking through and he knows where her dorm is, guys. He's like looking up at her her dorm room and it cuts to Buffy staring out her window as well. She like she senses something is there. Ugh. Man, they really tease us this episode. I'm wondering if he got pointers from Spike, you know, like he broke <laughs> in and looking up her dorm room, <laughs> counting the yeah. windows. How do we think he found her dorm room? Was it – well, we know he went to Giles. I think he's been keeping tabs on I her. think he looked it I up too. Like, like, you know, he's has yeah, his own investigation sure. yeah. team. I'm sure like him and Cordelia were sitting there like Buffy. Yeah. Or maybe <laughs> like we see later on that he's in Giles' house and they're like talking about it. I feel like either her and G- him and Giles talked earlier or they've been talking on the phone because it seems like Giles knew that he was coming. So I feel yeah, like he would have figured point. out – Buffy yeah. was I saying. guess he he has a lot of resources. It's not yeah. like it would be a massive like, oh my gosh, how did you find this? But yeah, he always just seems to know things too, you know? Like he, he lurks. It's a little weird. <laughs> he <Yeah>. lurks. <laughs> All right. So Will is talking about like what happened with the old mission. She's like, is there something out there? Because Buffy keeps looking out. And Buffy's like, how did they lose a mission? And I like the parallels that they make to the master in the church underneath the ground. And she's like, doesn't it make you wonder what else is there right under our feet? Dun, dun, dun. Put an asterisk in that until season six. I thought the same thing, Sarah. The same thing. (laughs) Yep, 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 yep. And then they start talking about Thanksgiving and what they're going to do for the holidays. And um, they talk about kids bringing home their laundry from college, which is so, again, so relatable. I I really do love how realistic they are making this feel. Um, Buffy just feels very lonely. She hugs Mr. Gordo, which, again, is another intentional choice of pointing back to how lonely Buffy is in, like, her childhood. But also who else held Mr. Gordo, even though it's a different Mr. Gordo, but we won't touch on that too much. Angel. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Angel. Yes, exactly. And, like, at at one point she's even talking – I forget what it is. She says something a little bit later on down. Oh, yeah. She says everything's all different now. And then she turns and looks out the window to where Angel is. Like, subconsciously, she just, like, knows he's there. I actually also wanted to point out the Dingo's Ate My Baby poster. You can see that behind Willow as she's uh, talking. And I was kind of shocked that um, she hadn't taken it down. Because wouldn't that be like a painful reminder, you know? But I think in Willow's mind, I don't think she's like her. I think she still kind of thinks he's going to come back and she's in denial. But I think it's the way that it's shot. I think it's interesting that it's like kind of like out of focus in the background. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of feel like it could represent that, you know, she's still thinking about Oz or he's like figuratively looming over her. You know, like, so I found that. And then 
Granted, how she behaves in the rest of the episode, her behavior is very intense. I think she's desperately trying to find something to distract herself with and to care about. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, I feel like her motivations are corrupted. But anyway, sorry, I I won't get into that now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, yes, we'll we'll talk about that in a second. Um, Also, and we will talk about the framing of this episode because Michael Lange, who directed this episode, did a tremendously good job of framing this episode and trying to tell a story with how he even puts characters in shots and stuff. And um, there's a really good article that I read, but we will talk about that in a second because it's just, it's really interesting. He also directed Surprise and Bad Girls. Yes. And I feel like and those, those are, are very- all my favorites. Yes. All right. So Buffy's like, hey, I decided that I want to host Thanksgiving. Well, actually, I'm going to make Thanksgiving and we'll host it at Giles's house. And she's trying to convince Willow, who's all like, wait, is did nothing I just said about, you know, indigenous people and colonialism, did nothing stick? And Buffy's like, I know it's just the sense memory. Like Buffy's searching for anything that feels familiar, anything that feels comforting at this moment. Um, and I really appreciate that Willow kind of understands that and doesn't really push it. But I do think it's really interesting that she says, we could not invite Anya, which this episode is all about the outsiders and bringing them in. And it and Willow, who's supposedly on the side of embracing and justifying the vengeance and like, you know, understanding what the indigenous people are going through and stuff is touting justice for those outsiders, yet she's not willing to embrace Anya, the outsider who's at her own front door, you know? So I thought that was a really interesting, like, almost hypocrisy that Willow doesn't even notice, you know? Well, I wanted to ask you guys, because um, I listened to an interview with Jane Espenson, and the interviewer asked her about that line. They were wondering if this was the start of Willow's anti-Anya campaign. I think it's the most overt, but I think that I think Willow has not liked Anya since Doppelgangland. Oh, duh. Doppelgangland. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That's what I was going to say. I think it's more so about Doppelgangland and also just about the fact that, like, I think that Willow kind of has valid reason to not like her. People chalk it up to jealousy, but I do think she has valid reasons because – you know, Anya came to her under false pretenses, like lied to her, manipulated her for her right. own personal gain. I really yeah. don't think it is jealousy. I mean, honestly, like that might have something to do with it, but I really feel like Willow was beyond that. I really it do. It just kind of like, comes across misogynistic though. It kind of seems like a pattern mm-hmm. with Willow sometimes. I think it is a pattern with Willow. Like she talks for about sure. like, comparing Veruca to Faith and Voice of an Albatross in like, mm-hmm. was it Beer Bad? And like yep, beer Willow bad. has a really hard time with getting along with other women I've noticed in the for show. For sure. But I would say at least in this case with she Anya, sees him as a threat. I would say that it's justified. Anya really screwed yeah. her over and really like- For now. Yeah, I'm talking about right now i'm talking about this episode like (laughs) she like anya really screwed her over and also just like i think that not wanting your friend to date a previous vengeance demon is kind of okay and it also kind of makes me mad (laughs) that they are trying to like mirror that with indigenous people because it's like anya like killed and tortured people for years. So Willow not having her come in with open arms is completely okay because she does – it's okay to like not love her 
after everything that she's done. But it's like then mirroring that with people who did nothing. Like that is just not fair. Yeah. And I, I, we all can agree that making the vampires and the vengeance demons, the representations, the parallels to the indigenous people is not okay. But I think that it is interesting when you realize that Willow's also advocating for like, or not advocating, but she's not against the slaughter or the vengeance that the spirit is portraying in this episode when it's like, okay, well, we shouldn't be on board with killing and maiming other people. Um, specifically because in um, Wild at Heart, Willow got really close to actually going through with her own vengeance spell when she found out about Veruca and Oz. So I like I do think the optics are bad. I agree with you, Leah, 100%. But I think from like a metaphorical sense, it makes sense that they would be like these are the outsiders, you know. I don't think it's the best use of it, but that is like the metaphor of what the show's trying to tell us. I know. It's so hard. It's so hard to kind of like be like, okay, yes, like we can't we just can't there's no way of getting past it in this episode having the indigenous people even if it is a metaphorical shumash spirit having them in this position makes the entire metaphor fall apart <laughs> but it is there and so we're trying to dissect it but at the same time be like it's not okay so there's just no winning you know what would have been something more interesting that they could have done they could have had um and it wouldn't be as thought-provoking, but it would definitely be a lot better. They could have had the Scoobies, their Thanksgiving dinner, you know, go wrong somehow and someone maybe attack them. And then um, Native Americans or Shumash or people with Shumash ancestry or just people that are still alive because this episode claims that it, they've been exterminated, but they haven't. If they came in as the yes. heroes and they were 100%. like, hey, we're better than you because we're going to mm-hmm. help you. You know, like they could have painted them in a good light. I mean, it's still tokenized, but it it could have been better. Anyway. Okay. But I will say this next scene, Bobby's like, everyone's got a place to go. And then we have this like super sad music and Spike is like shivering and wretched and his his blanket has these massive holes over his, his makeup. Jacket and really like- uh, did themselves like the makeup artists. They did such a good job. He looks so decrepit and just like dying. I just love that they like show him running away and there's this massive hole right on his butt too. And he's wearing his jacket like underneath it. And I was like, dude, at this point, just throw the blanket yeah, away. Right? It's the most worthless, <laughs> pathetic excuse for a blanket. <laughs> And then we have the one of two scenes with Riley. We have Graham, Riley, and Forrest walking through. They have their faces like all painted. And Pasha the Nerd like pointed out, he's like, they look more conspicuous with the face paint. Like, just why? Why are you doing this? Freaking Graham. I literally he's the most punchable face I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> I'm guys, I'm not trying to be rude, but like it's true. Like, like he every time he speaks and does the whole like coughing, like um, Mama's boy. I'm like, shut up. Oh, you mean Forrest? You mean Forrest? Sorry, yes, not Forrest. Graham. I yeah, whatever. Forrest. I was gonna say Graham's so... pretty harmless. I was like, wow, Tabby coming in here strong. <laughs> no, no, no. Graham, Graham barely speaks. He's fine. Forrest. Forrest has a valid point. I think this scene is just there to make us maybe be impressed with Riley. You know, the fact that he's in charge and he can take away Forrest's vacation, like just like that, you know? Because I was thinking, I was like, do we need this? Like, why is this here? You know? And I think, I think it's more 
likely that it's there to make us sympathize more with Spike because they're trying to bring Spike and the Scoobies together. And so they have to show the threat that he is up against in order for it to be dire enough for him to go to the Scoobies, if that makes sense. All I know is it does not make me freaking have respect for Riley. All I see, I greasy hair, greasy face. Yeah, I will will say I don't force either. (laughs) But like, if I was like trying to go home on vacation, all that, and like the person over me was like, we're going to stay out all night. I'd be like, dang, can we go? Like, Is this the same night that he runs like three blocks? Mama's boy. Yeah, bro. Yeah, well, like then how night. come he's like wiping off all this face paint in a second and then running over to her? It makes zero sense. That's why his hair is greasy, probably. It's still kind Does of he wet. Does he have like wipes with him? <laughs> like, I just don't understand. Yeah, he's got his makeup wipes. Yeah. They're forests. He borrows them. They would be forests. <laughs> Forest has like a 10 minute skincare routine every night. Everything's it organic. It's working for him. It is. He, he does have some good skin. He I looks will say. a lot better than Riley. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like Buffy and Forrest would have been a much more interesting. Oh, wait, I can't say. I mean, never mind. Oh, no, don't say that. No. <laughs> no, I like you, Alexandra. <laughs> oh. I'm just trying Forrest. to no. Okay, but wait. I would rather <laughs> just think about how funny they would be, though. You know, like they'd just be like big. He's like, not funny at all. No, but Buffy's funny, and like they're they could have like some good like banter <laughs> between them. I don't know. Like she could teach him some things. He could teach her some things. You know, I don't know it. It would it would be it would be the most epic enemies to friends to lovers. It, um, yeah, it would I've be a more because- compelling <laughs> narrative to follow. I feel like, especially because sure. Sarah Michelle Gellar and Mark Bukas do not have good chemistry. Um, and I, I think agree. they have very friend yeah, vibes. And I, I don't think they have. I actually yeah. think was it you, Sarah, who said that they stopped giving Willow scenes with Riley because. Their yeah. chemistry was yep. just noticeably way too much better. Chemistry. Like way better. <laughs> and I want to talk about that in the next scene because I felt like there was a ton of sparkage between Willow and Riley instantaneously. And I was like, oh, dang it. And they made her leave the scene. I think she had yeah, some sparkage I... with Angel too. I don't know. Like <laughs> David could have like chemistry with literally anyone. The reason not oh, I can say that. Uh, not I anyone. was about to say something. <laughs> I disagree. I actually feel like it was way more of well, like the actress who plays Willow. I Allison think that Hannigan. I mean I think that yeah, I think Allison Hannigan is like probably one of the best actors or actresses. Oh, on the absolutely. Show, if not the best. Well, Sarah's the best. Yeah. I would say Sarah Giles. Uh, Joss, Rupert. I mean, what the hell, Tony? <laughs> and then, he's real to me. And then, uh, then I would say Allison. Top three. I feel like, yeah, for yeah. sure. I feel like I, I would definitely agree. I with put that. James four. James is good. James yeah. is good. Yeah. So then we have this quick scene where Xander is suffering from illness and Anya's like, you're supposed to be digging. I want to watch you dig. And Xander's like, I am so tired, woman. Leave me alone. But then she gets all nurturing and is trying to help him. And then he lets the G word slip. He says, girlfriend. And you can just see her face. I'm not like – 
oh yeah, Anya Xander, woo, like go together. But I will say that like I was happy for she her. is warming up. Mm-hmm. And I think that like that look on her face when she realizes that he called her her girlfriend, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, Anya, you earned that. <laughs> you worked yeah, hard for uh, that. <laughs> Jane Espenson actually um, said that it's unexpected to see warmth from Anya because she's so uh, blunt. Mm. And that's why this scene actually is very moving and hits hard because you just mm-hmm. see this softness in her and even though i'm like anya girl you can do better i'm just like if anya wants Mm -hmm. to be with xander for some unknown reason i want her to find (laughs) some kind of happiness so good for her you know like good for you girl and you know what anya has shown that she truly truly cares for xander like fear itself she worked to rescue him from the house like i just i feel like it's just been refreshing to see her just care for him so boldly and unashamedly so. And he didn't have that with Cordelia, you know? So Yeah, even though- and that's something we talked about, I think, in Fear Itself. I think it was Tabby who mentioned that, like, Cordelia cared so much about status, even though she did love Xander. But she, I think she held back. All right, so then we have those couple of quick scenes. We have the eerie green CGI vapor miasma mist, whatever, floating up out of the mission chamber. Then we have the curator talking about how – um, they're really excited about finding the old mission, but unfortunately, they need to find a new place to put the new cultural place that they're making. Um, and then we have the Shumash knife being picked up by the Shumash warrior, and then the curator dies. Which, interestingly, I think it was Rhonda Wilcox that talked about how initially they made the curator um, male because they were trying to show like the masculine authority because you have like the um, like the patriarchal stuff to kind of mirror what was happening back in colonial times. So you would have the religious patriarchy that he goes to kill Father Gabriel. Then you have the dean and then you have the curator. But I don't know why they changed her to a woman. Um, All right. So then now we have Buffy and Willow making their way through the crime scene. This is really fun. I don't remember the last time Buffy and Willow have hung out this season doing anything like Slayer-like. And it is also really sad that now that Oz is gone, we actually see more of Willow. I feel like we didn't see very much of Willow when Oz was around, which is really sad, but it is what it is. I think it's interesting that Buffy is calling uh, Willow practicing magic a hobby. Again, I think that's the the second time she called it a hobby. Yes. Yeah. That was a huge thing in fear itself. Willow was like, you know, I'm not just a side. Yeah. And she was like belittling her. And I feel like her being like, that's a fun little hobby you got there, Will. I think, although I think the line is like funny and I, and I love their, I love the dialogue in the scene between them. I think it's natural. Um, I did find that, I don't know, a bit interesting and a bit belittling in some ways, but I still love you, Buffy. But yeah, Yeah. it's just like, hmm, it's a little bit more than a hobby. I don't know if it's supposed to be belittling, but I do think it's supposed to be dismissive. Yes, I think it is. I think that Buffy is intentionally trying to be like Willow, like I'm not going to give this anything more than it being a hobby. Because like, I think it's also because like for Willow, like Buffy's kind of saying like, if this becomes more of a hobby, we're going to have an issue. Like it's going to be a problem. Mm. Like it needs to be a hobby. It needs to be something that, Willow does casually because I think that if it, she doesn't, it's something where Buffy would have to intervene. Like when I say that I don't think she was intentionally being belitt- belittling, I just think she doesn't take it yeah. very seriously. So she just kind of. Yes, I agree. And I feel, and that's valid because 
at this point in the series, Willow isn't anything like remarkable yet in terms of magic, but she's still, it's dangerous, you know, regardless, it is dangerous. And especially like her saying that there's some great, uh, I think she said there's some great spells or whatever that need an adding an ear in the mix would be like perfect or something. I forget the exact line, but it's like, that's dark. That is dark as shit. So the, so I get like Buffy just, Buffy just calling it a hobby. I feel like it's just kind of to like acknowledge her sentence without completely acknowledging it in the same, at the same time, because I'd be like, whoa. So in their continual search, they notice that the, stone knife is missing from its case. Observant queen. I noticed that too. And that's something that she even said to Giles too, because when he was like giving her a counterpoint. There were scissors right nearby. Yeah. Yes. I love, love, love how it's so easy to just kind of like brush past Buffy and be like, oh, okay, she's the slayer, but like she's not really like good at what she does or observant. No, girlfriend is on her job. Like she knows what she's doing. I love it. All right, so Giles is like, I'll look into the Shumash connection, see if there's any significance to the ear removal. Buffy's like, I'm going to go back to the store. And so she heads out. And but before she heads out, she kind of pauses, like, wait, something is funky. And Giles is like, is everything all right? And she's like, no, 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 it's fine. And then she just leaves. So then we have Angel come into this scene. And I adore this scene because the last time the angel was in the apartment, in Mm -hmm. Giles' apartment, or even with Giles, just them two alone, was amends. When Angel comes in and is asking for help because he's seeing the ghost of Jenny and all this other stuff. And I just think any time that we have Angel and Giles in the apartment where Jenny's body was found – that that is intentional and it's significant. And I think they really want us to remember that in this scene. I agree. Yeah. Also too, just how they, the characters interact in the scene, like the AV article, pop culture holiday dinners suck for everybody, especially Buffy. The author talks about how when they blocked the characters in the episode, they're trying to show the theme of families falling apart at Thanksgiving and coming together. And so they tightened up the world to create this kind of cluttered, claustrophobic feel that you often feel when you are with your family and everyone starts arguing and it just gets really suffocating. And Mm. so the way they shot this episode, you have Giles and Buffy in the kitchen and they pulled back and they, they said that characters who don't typically share the frame are jammed in three and four characters in the scene at a time. Um, And Buffy and Giles are in the same small room in the kitchen, made even smaller by the decision to film it through the kitchen cutout. And then they're separated by the the very thing that ostensibly brings them together, which is the grocery bag of Thanksgiving food. So it's very like tight and claustrophobic. And then Buffy leaves. Angel comes out and it's almost like Angel and Giles, they don't want to look at each other and they can't get far enough away from each other in in the scene. Well, I was about to say it's very – you could tell that it's very intentional that they um, filmed – in this space of the kitchen. We've never seen anything filmed in that tiny space. It's always from been the outside, um, which is a very Thanksgiving thing. It's like people bump into each other all the time and, and like the kitchen, they're all mm-hmm. working on their own dishes. It's like chaotic, uh, which I like. Originally, Angel, when he's talking to Giles, he says, you know, it's harder for him to be on the outside, like looking in. Yes, he yes, says, yes, like yes. I've forgotten how mm-hmm. bad it feels, but it was originally said – being a spectator just outside her life is the most painful thing I can imagine. And I believe the script was changed specifically for the cut to the next scene. 
Um, which obviously like it makes a makes a really funny transition, really funny cut. Um, but I like the original line better, even if I think we still get his feeling with the generalization of the statement to make it more applicable to the next scene, for instance. And I also just want to say one other thing about this. How the fuck does Angel know Father Gabriel? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Angel knows everyone. Everyone ever. Angel knows. My guess is Angela's kept a running list of all of the missions and churches and all of the priests and like made it his life's work to go and like kill every single one. And Father Gabriel was like next on his list, but then he got his soul back. So <laughs> maybe he was on his, yeah, he was on his hit list. He was like, you're next, Father Gabriel. <laughs> Obviously, it makes sense why Giles would feel this way. I think he's even uh, he's a lot nicer than I would be in that situation. Um, But it just makes for some very compelling television when you get the two of them together in a scene, but especially just alone. Um, And I also just love like the two of them talking about Buffy's well-being, because I feel like those are the two men that love Buffy the most, you know, Just seeing them like talking about Buffy and wanting to protect her, even though like Giles says, you know, she can take care of herself. Like, and Angel shouts back, well, doesn't shout back, but he's like, well, so she doesn't need you anymore either. And yet here you are. So I liked that moment. I was like, ooh. I did too. I I thought it was I thought it was called for, but I was like, "Whoa, Angel, way to get Giles right where it hurts." Because we know Giles is kind of going through a bit of an identity crisis right now. I'm just going to assume Angel doesn't know that, though. I'm going to assume he doesn't know that Giles is feeling like <laughs> way well, to believe the best. Even if even if he does know that Giles is feeling that, I think it's a valid thing. It's yeah, valid. I think yeah. he's yeah. saying, Giles, you and I are both in the same boat. We don't necessarily have a role or a place in Buffy's life. We just know that we love her and that we want to look out for her. You know, she's the most capable person ever. She doesn't need help, but that doesn't mean that you can't look out for her, you know, and care about her and want to help her. So Giles is not comfortable with the fact that Buffy doesn't know. What do you guys think? Because that's kind of a – that's a big thing, especially leading into the next episode. Do you guys think that it is right for Angel to not tell Buffy? Also, do you agree with his justification for why he shouldn't see her? I don't necessarily think that it is right or wrong. I just know that it is completely, absolutely valid for Buffy to be hurt and mad. (laughs) Like, I don't know. But I also don't think that it's wrong because I know that Angel was trying to do the right thing. But it's also like, I feel like Buffy not knowing the full situation puts her in harm's way way more than being in the dark. Like, I feel like as for as long as we've watched the show, we should know by now that If there's anything that Buffy needs to know, she should know it. Like, it just helps in the long run. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also just think that if Angel had come into town really quick, talked to, you know, Giles, and then left, I I don't think that Buffy would have needed to know that. But he's, like, stalking her and, like, directly going to, like, her friends and Giles and, like, everyone and then, like, checking in on her, like – and – actively doing stuff to help her, I think she should know. I think that she should have known. I think someone should have told her. I think Angel should have told her. Um, But I don't necessarily hugely fault him for not. As a viewer, I find it incredibly frustrating. Um, 
watching like watching this episode for the first time, I was so happy to have Angel back. And then I was like, but wait, you're not even going to let Buffy see him? What the hell? Um, but at the same time, I think it's in, it's very compelling television, knowing that she can sense that he's there, but she doesn't see him. And I think that is what makes it work in terms of like entertainment um, because we know that he's there. Everybody knows except her, you know? And so she senses him and we see that and we go, Ooh, Oh my God, is she going to look at him? Is she going to look at him? Is she going to see him? And then she never does. Um, but I think that um, I'd have to agree with Leah. I think um, it's not good or bad. I understand his perspective a hundred percent, but in, I'm just mostly happy that Giles speaks on Buffy's behalf because, mm-hmm. you know, he's advocating for her and saying, you know, I don't think it's right what you're doing. Like, sh- you know, you can see her, but she can't see you. But then Angel comes back with that line and you think like, this is probably a lot harder for him than it is for her because she doesn't know that he's there, but you know, she senses him, but she doesn't know, you know? So just having to watch someone that you love so much and so desperately want to be with and just not be able to say anything to them because it would make things harder. And especially when you think about what Buffy's been going through this season so far, I feel, you know, she's getting her groove back. She's getting her confidence back. If she were to see Angel, you know, she's trying to work towards something with Riley, for instance. Like, it seems like they have this, like, flirtation going on. She's trying to move on. And Angel showing up disrupts that. And, you know, she even mentions it in um, Graduation Day Part 1, where she's like, I can't do this. Like, I can't have you in my life when I'm trying to move on. So I think it's merciful in some ways and wrong in others. And that's what makes it interesting. All right. So then we go to poor dear sweet Spike. (laughs) I love this scene so much. He's like looking through a dusty window. The script is hilarious. It says, inside in a pool of golden lamplight, a small nest of vampires is settling down with a dazed human victim. An older vampire is about to bite. Then he pauses and holds the whimpering victim out to a younger vampire. A heartwarming domestic scene. Yeah. So that was what I was going to say is that was Joss's idea. Um, He wanted there to be like a vampire family having their own Thanksgiving where they're sharing. And that's so Yeah. So it's like, you know, he's drawing the comparison there too and that's why the line was changed because it wouldn't be as applicable to this situation it wouldn't be as funny if it was the very specific line that angel was talking about his own experiences but they expanded it to make it more general so and it's hilarious like just everything about spike in this episode is so thrilling to me i'm just i i (laughs) i love everything about what he's doing in this episode i mean obviously i have there are some controversial aspects because of the things that he says, but he's a, just mm-hmm. a joy to watch. And I would love for him and Angel to have a run in. Like, really, like, I, I'm bummed that we don't get that because of, you know, the last They're both time. They're stalking people. That would have been yeah, funny. Like, the last time Angel saw Spike, let's think about that. Hmm. That was crazy. So I feel like they'd have some words for each other. 
All right. So then Buffy and Willow are near the espresso pump. Buffy is like, I have to get like homemade whipped cream. I can't just get whipped cream from the store that you just like get out of a can. And I was like, relatable. (laughs) As a fellow perfectionist, I understand. Also, it's a little funny watching this episode knowing that like Sarah went on to have a cookbook and stuff. It's kind of funny. Yeah, that's true. I didn't even think about that. So Buffy's like, I swear this will be the last thing. And all of a sudden we hear, Buffy, Buffy. And uh, Willow is so cute. She has like the biggest smile on her face. She's so excited and happy for Buffy, like giving Riley like a thumbs up. It's cool to see like Buffy supporting or Willow supporting Buffy. Because I mean, like we saw it with Angel a lot. Like Willow was like their number one kind of like supporter. She was the first Angel stan for real. Yeah, yeah, no, she really was. But it's Mm -hmm. sweet to see Willow just cheering for Buffy and just cheering for her, even in the midst of being so heartbroken over Oz. So Willow's going to get coffee and Angel grabs Willow and he's like, my friend had a vision. And Willow's like, so tell her, help her. And Angel's like, no, 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 it'll make things worse. And Willow's like, see, I don't get that. And I was like, here we go. Yes, here, here, Willow. You may be projecting, but you're spot on here. For real. I was like, clap, clap, Willow. Thank you. Someone has to say it. Yep. She's like, I don't get this whole leaving for her own good. You can't just give up on something because there's obstacles. The POVs in this episode are so out of the norm. Like the fact that they're in the cafe and then he's peeking over to like a random angle we've never seen before from his perspective watching Buffy talk to Riley. I was like, this episode is so absurd in like a good way and some bad ways. But like it's just – it's a different perspective than we've ever seen from Buffy. Even like the killings that like the Native Americans do are just like, oh, this isn't feeling Buffy. And the POVs and just like Angel being there but not being there, Spike being like in the gang. Like it just – there's a lot of mystical stuff. The show goes out of its way to frame everything and put yourself into Angel and Spike and Huss's shoes. Yeah. It shows things like through windows. Like we watch from Huss's perspective watching Giles. We are um, Spike's perspective watching the vampires. We are Angel's perspective watching Buffy and Riley. Like we're constantly the outsider and it's really, really clever. Um, so then Angel's like, all right, everything's just different now. And then Will's like, okay, side note, is Cordelia really working for you? The only time she's mentioned other than in Family, which is an episode you haven't covered yet. I don't be- is she mentioned in the freshman? I don't think she is. No, yeah, she's, she's only mentioned. I hate that. Times. She just was freezed out immediately. I'm like, guys, she was in It's very seasons. intentional and strange. And at the same time, yes. Cordelia mentions Buffy so much on Angel. Like, literally. Yeah. I'm like, girl, I think there's some things that you need to work through. <laughs> like, what's I, going but on? But I think <laughs> I think it's also because like Buffy was already established show, so they can afford to not talk about Cordelia. Whereas like, Angel's the spinoff. So of course they're gonna name drop Buffy a ton. And mm-hmm. who's gonna name drop Buffy more than Angel, it's going to be Cordelia because they have this rivalry. But they also don't want to tie Angel too much to Buffy because they're trying to make him his own. Well, but also, a lot of times when Cordelia is talking about Buffy, it's to Angel. So it's like, it's something that directly relates to Angel and what he's going through. So it's not like they're just throwing it in there. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of time so they could have brought up Cordelia. Well, think about it. They weren't actually friends And it's so easy to drift with people after high school. I felt like it would be unnatural for them to just shoehorn her in because she wouldn't fit. Like she doesn't belong with them anymore. You know, like her tie was Xander. Her tie was Sunnydale going to the same school. They don't have those connections anymore. So um, it makes sense. But at the same time, you just think, oh, like, 
she's gone and forgotten, basically. So then Angel's like, all right, who's that guy and stuff? So this is probably my biggest problem with Angel this episode is like, okay, you can't be pulling aside all her friends to kind of figure out what's going on in, in Buffy's life. Um, and I don't know if that's necessarily what he was intentionally doing or if that's just kind of like what ended up happening. But it's like, listen, if you're going to be doing this, I understand Giles, then you actually need to like go and talk to Buffy. So this is the one part that I was just not quite Well, in his with. defense, just to play devil's advocate here, ahead, he didn't mean to run into Willow. It was an accident. Um, I don't like – I don't think – he meant to talk to her. Or maybe he did. I'd always, to me, it seemed like he just accidentally ran into her. That might be how the episode wanted us to see it, but I kind of just saw it as like, maybe this was just David Boreanaz's fault. He like grabbed her immediately. So it felt like he just like saw her and then grabbed her and was like, hey, we're going to talk it, now. It would make sense though from like a, because we know he's jealous, right? Because he sees yeah. Buffy talking to Riley and then he sees Willow leaving. And so he wants to take her aside and be like, who is this guy? You know, so it does make sense, but the conversation they have about it later where, you know, she's like, I think he's lost his edge. Like to me, it for her, she felt like he accidentally ran into her. I think that was okay. her understanding of what happened between them. Okay. So this conversation with Buffy and Riley, <laughs> I feel like I'm going to be the only one on Riley's side here, Ooh, even though he does Riley. nothing wrong. <laughs> so Jane said that they hadn't established where Riley was from and she's from Iowa Oh, so, right. Yes. Yeah. And she didn't have time to research because she was researching um, the shoe mask. So that is why Riley is from Iowa. And I think it's hilarious because it's so fitting at the same it time. It is very you know? fitting. You yes. wouldn't expect it to just be like a convenient thing, like something that was yeah. thrown in there. Like it makes sense yeah. thematically yeah. and for his character. But anyway, I yeah. thought that was funny. I will say it is the most accurate thing to his character. It's like, of course he's from Of course he's Iowa. from Iowa, right? Like, <laughs> No, but honestly, his Thanksgiving does sound really nice. Like they go for a walk down the river with the dogs and I don't know. I like that. I think that sounds really nice. Yeah, that's a lot better than how my Thanksgivings go where I just argue with my family. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yep. It's a lot better than how Buffy's Thanksgiving went, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so Buffy's just very disappointed. She wants Riley to come to her Thanksgiving meal and can't. And she's also like, you know, just kind of feeling a little bummed out. The fact that Riley has a family and a place to go and people that want to see him. And he's clearly very excited about it, you know. So then Harmony, oh, can I just say, I'm so proud of my girl Harmony. I know. I was so proud of her. Way to hold your ground. She's like, I'm beautiful, I'm powerful, and I don't need you to complete me. Go Harmony, man. She does such a good job. And Spike, he's like, oh my gosh, you have a stake in our bed. Like he still refers <laughs> to it as their bed. And I was like, Harmony's moved in. Do you not see the pink everywhere, the unicorns? Like this is no longer your domain, Spike. <laughs> <laughs> I was belly laughing when he was wandering the streets with this freaking blanket yeah. and looks through the window. <laughs> yep. Peak comedy. I always thought that he said, can I have something to eat? But he says, can I have someone uh -huh. to eat? Which makes it even better. Like, I'm just like, oh, my God. He's, like, Hilarious. so desperate. He's like, please, anyone. Okay, so, okay, this is probably my favorite fact of the episode. So Buffy's walking through that empty church, which, side note, I was like, that must have been a real fun place for Angel to stalk her. But, okay, so the establishing shot of the monastery is um, Mission San Juan Bautista in San Juan Bautista. Um, so, like, the outside. But as I was watching it, I was like – 
this looks so familiar. And then I Googled it. So the interior shots, Tabby Leah, do you guys want to guess where this was filmed? Is it another show? No. Or another movie? No, it's somewhere we've been. That is insane. What? Wait, what? I'm on the edge of my seat. All right, all right, here we go. So I was watching the episode and I was like, this can't be. And so I Googled it. Guys, the interior shots were shot at the mission in Mission Hill, San Fernando, five minutes from where we grew up. No what? way. Yes. So you know how we lived right off of um, San Fernando Mission, like Sepulveda? If you follow that road all the way up past the McDonald's and the two like um, car dealerships, that mission was at the very end. We passed it every day and that's where this was shot. That's crazy. So if anybody lives in Mission Hills, California, or nearby there, um, go stop by the mission and uh, wave hi at our old home. All right. So Buffy comes into the mission, doesn't see anyone, goes outside, finds Father Gabriel dead, hanging from an archway, and Huss is standing besides the body. Um, and he cuts off the ear of the of Father Gabriel, and Buffy and him fight. And there's some like pretty problematic and interesting dialogue here. And this is where like the dialogue really starts to kind of get really uncomfortable. Huss says, I am vengeance. I am my people's cry. They call for Huss, for the avenging spirit, to carve out justice. Um, and then Buffy says, they tell you to start an ear collection. So Rhonda Wilcox says um, of Buffy, she says, her tone is not only acerbically humorous, but also steeped in moral righteousness. But her wit is born of ignorance. Not much later in the episode, she learns that the ear cutting began with the settler's mutilation of the Shumash as a form of proof of death. Thus, Buffy's seeming linguistic dominance is undone. The complacency of her confrontation with Huss was based on mistaken assumptions. So like, that's very flowery language for basically saying that like, it makes sense why Buffy would be very morally righteous in how she's talking to Huss because as the episode progresses, Buffy starts to have a moral dilemma as she has become more aware of the Shumash's history and realizing, oh, the Native Americans are not the instigators in this situation. It was actually the colonists and therefore I need to reevaluate like whether or not it's right to slay them or not, which I think is like a really interesting place and position to put our main character. Agreed. I think I touched on this earlier, but in the earlier drafts of the episode, Espenson gave Huss a much more human voice and in fact, an actual name. She had his character present the case about the atrocities in his own words, still impassioned, but in much less stilted language. Huss and Buffy have an actual conversation and he says, our people were slaughtered, imprisoned in your missions, forced into labor, cut down by the thousands by your diseases, our lands taken, our women raped, our children starved, the men driven to theft. And when we fought back, we tried to take back what was ours. We ended up like the priest here, like the seller of lives. The contrast between the original Huss and Buffy is much less in terms of language and tone. Huss's language and tone are farther from the empty ceremonial statements of the academics and closer to the voice of our hero, which I'm so bummed that they didn't leave that in because I think that would have made a massive difference in how this episode was received. It kind of reminds me of something that happens later in this season that we can't really talk about. Um, yes, but I thought of I that think, too. Yeah, giving um, a character a voice and a name um, and a name humanizes them and makes them feel real and more, their feelings more valid. Mm-hmm. And I feel the route they went is very dehumanizing. The and you know Willow's, I believe it's Willow, right, who comes in and like names all the things. It's like yes. all these terrible things happen to him, 
and his tribe. And he, it doesn't even get to be the one that speaks on it even, you know, because I believe they do it for several reasons. And the main Mm -hmm. reason is to make him seem wrong and irrational. Um, Yeah. Right. So he's supposed to be vengeance, which is bad. Yeah. Yeah. So they're taking away his voice. So we feel less inclined to think like, hey, maybe he has a point. You know, like we're they want us to side with the Scoobies. Rhonda Wilcox goes on to talk about how they she believes that they had Willow presenting most of the atrocities instead of Huss because that would make Huss less of a person and more of a symbol because he was supposed to be the spirit. But also, if we hear about the atrocities through the point of view of one of the Scoobies, they said it will be easier for the the audience members to have an emotional connection, but it takes away the voice. And so there's an essay. We Don't Say Indian by Agnes Curry. And she says that denying Huss his voice or limiting him to a voice that speaks in a pompous tone helps explain why critics call this episode patronizing. Nonetheless, eventually within the episode, the voice of Huss is shown to have justification and Buffy's flippant mockery of it is very clearly shown to be mistaken, while the similarly pompous academic voices of Gerhardt and Guero are never unmocked, so to speak. So basically they say, because Buffy's shown to be mistaken and it's actually critiqued later in the episode that the way that Buffy spoke was wrong, they're saying, therefore, like, audience members should be able to infer that, oh, Buffy was wrong. But I feel like that's quite a stretch. Like, the audience has to do quite a lot of, like, deep thinking in order to understand the perspective that the episode is coming from. And I don't think it should be that hard to like infer who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. I also think that it's interesting that they chose to have Willow be the one to give information thinking that it would help the audience connect to it more. And I actually think that it disconnects more because Mm. every way that they've introduced the big bad is this way is like they go and they research and they find out like, you know, oh, this is their motives, this is their, not their big, the big bad, but like just the bad of the episode. So the approach of it doesn't feel any different to any other like quote unquote villain Mm. for an episode. Whereas I feel like if it were him coming and being like explaining and being like, this is what's going on. This is my people. This is why I'm so angry. Like I feel like that would have been way more like, oh my gosh, like – Yes, Leah, I think you're I think you're right. Let's think of Inca Mummy Girl. She was probably one of the most I remember when we we went over that episode, it was so hard to say, "Oh, what you're doing is not okay" when she tries to attack Xander, but because it was so easy to relate with her because we had seen her talk about these things. We'd exactly. seen her feel these things. And if they had done the same thing with Huss, I think it would have gone over so much better. So then back in Giles's kitchen, Buffy and Giles are having, you know, recap everything. And Buffy's like, this is just really hard. She's like, I, I'm, I'm struggling with what to do here. She says that I like my evil, like my men evil, you know, straight up black hat tied to the railroad tracks. She's like, not all mixed up with guilt and the destruction of an indigenous culture. Buffy, do you really like your men evil? Or is this yeah. <laughs> finally admitting that you were still attracted to Angel when he was Angelus? Like, <laughs> it could go either way because – I don't like that line is iconic and I like it, but I'm just kind of like, do you though? 
Yeah. And Passion of the Nerd actually talks about it. He says, the funniest part about the line is it isn't true. Buffy and Angel were nothing but complex. Like the Native American spirit in season two, Angel was good and then turned evil. And while his plight that season that brought him to this turn was a sympathetic one, once bodies started dropping, Buffy's path was clear. In the eyes of the show, the plight that brought the individual to an evil act can never can justify the act itself. So Passion of the Nerd saying that like he doesn't understand why Buffy's struggling so much in this moment because she's always been like, hey, if you're hurting and killing other people, like no matter like whether or not you're the victim, it's still my job to stop you from hurting other people. And so in his mind, he's like, this kind of doesn't quite make sense. It doesn't track. It's a it's a funny, iconic line, but it doesn't really make sense. <laughs> yeah. All right, so Buffy's like, yeah, I want to stop this guy. I just wish there was a non-slay way to do it. So then Willow comes in with the peas, and we have this like really funny moment where Buffy's like, oh my gosh, no, you got the frozen peas. Now they're going to be all like weird and mashed, and I want fresh peas. And in, in between, interspersed with Willow being like, atrocities? atrocities? And like talking about like the Shumash War, and Giles is like – Oh, but I like like mashed peas or mushy like peas mushy or whatever. Peas. And Will yeah. and Buffy's like, yeah, well, you're the reason why there had to be pilgrims in the first place. <laughs> and I was like, dang, Buffy really pulled out that you're the reason colonialism happened. Like she was saving that one. <laughs> so then Willow gives the background and says that, you know, it was actually the Spaniards and the Europeans that were hurting the Shumash and that they had no food, so they were forced to steal. Um, and they had their ears cut off and all this stuff. And so Buffy then realizes that Huss was not kidding, that he was actually like, you know, believing that he had a rightful vengeance. She says he's recreating all the wrongs that were done to his people. And so as they're having discussion, then we look through the living room window and we realize that like Huss is listening and watching along with like everything that they're talking about. Um, and Giles is like, so it's up to us to stop him, which is his conclusion to this conversation. And Buffy's like, Buffy is the classic, I, I want to say like all of us, you know, when your family starts arguing and having a conflict at dinner, you're like, okay, I'm just going to go leave the room and like make food because that's unproblematic. I don't have to worry about the conflict. But I think that's such a family thing is like when the holidays, for some reason, bring things up for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's obvious that Thanksgiving has some sort of connotation to Buffy mm -hmm. and fighting and all that. And I think that she just wants it to not be like that for once. Yeah. It's very sad. It is really sad. And I, I feel for Buffy. Um, it's interesting. The coyote is listening and it actually stops and turns away the moment that Giles says, no, I think perhaps we won't help the angry spirit with his rape and pillage and murder, which, oh, I wonder if like maybe he hadn't have said that if things maybe would have turned out differently. I know it's supposed to be the representation of the spirit of the Shumash people, but oh, it's just really sad. And that that that's the beginning of where I started being like, oh, okay, Giles, I feel like you're missing the point here. So someone pointed out that the episode kept acting as if not killing the spirit would help the tribe when it would not. What could have been great is if they had used the spirit as inspiration. And I think Leah talked about this earlier. If they'd used the spirit as inspiration for helping those of the tribe that are alive and well and not murdering people, um, how cool would have been if Willow been like, hey, actually like know someone who is from the Shumash tribe or like we can go find someone. And then like, then we started this whole arc of like, Let's actually talk to a real life person who has been affected by this, you know? 
Um, it's interesting because Jane Espenson actually did speak to people with uh, Shumas ancestry. Okay. Um, which makes it, in her research, I mean, which makes it even more interesting that they have that line in about them being, like, non-existent, basically. That is really weird. Um, yeah. I don't know if maybe it wasn't in the original script. And, it, you know, like we said, Joss did a lot of rewrites. Um, but, you know, I feel badly for her because she really didn't want the episode to be offensive. That was her main thing. Um, and look where we're at. I think that... It was well-intentioned, but it most likely came from – it's a product of its time, a time when you weren't thinking about stereotypes. You're thinking, oh, this is a positive stereotype, therefore it's Mm -hmm. good. And it's like, no, like we should not just be creating a caricature of these characters. And I think Mm -hmm. it's it's a very modern idea of like letting someone use their own voice to to inform the subject, to inform the topic. It's not enough to just talk about someone. You actually need to hear from them, from their own experiences. And that's something that the episode really missed. Um, And I feel like that's more of a modern concept. So this conversation between Willow and Giles, I want to know your guys' thoughts. When we, we land on the side of Giles and we land on the side of Willow, what are your thoughts when they're like going back and forth and they're talking about like, you know, and this is even a conversation now in, in today's society. Like we all know like I am Queen Elizabeth just died and there are a lot of conversations right now happening in other countries about reparations, crown jewels that maybe should be returned um, and all that other stuff. But there's also the very real idea of like we can't just give land back because that would displace thousands and thousands of people. Um, and so I'm just curious, what do you guys think about when you listen to this conversation from Giles's perspective and Willow's perspective? I, I always go back and forth because it's like, I understand the idea of being like, give it back, like give it back their land. But it's also like at this point, like you would like kind of what you said, like so many people wouldn't even be having a home. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I also don't really fully agree with Giles. So it's like, I just feel like. Part of it is like giving a voice to those people mm-hmm. and like letting them inform others and inform people and like building from there. Um, but I, I don't know if there's a cut and dry solution. Yeah. That's what makes it so difficult is that there isn't a solution really. Um, the only thing you can really do is let people say their piece you know, um, give them a voice, let them mourn, let them be angry, let them feel what they want to feel, because this isn't something that Willow or Giles can ever fix. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what makes the conversation interesting, because you you can see both of their perspectives, and they're both saying things that are true. Mm -hmm. Um, What makes it difficult is that just coming to terms with the fact that there isn't a solution. There really mm-hmm. isn't um, because history is history. And the best thing we can do about history is talk about it and learn from it and grow. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst thing you can do is stifle people and try to hide your history. And that's something that the United States does very well is mm-hmm. hiding their history and misrepresenting their own history. It's just sadly, you're powerless to the past other than just to learn from it. All right, so Giles and Willow fight a little bit more, but then Giles pulls her aside and says, hey, I have reason to believe Buffy's in danger. They're both like, hey, do you know something? Do you know something? It's like, <laughs> speaking of friends, it's that moment where Rachel and um, – They don't yeah. know that we know that they, they, don't they know. Yeah, that yeah. We know. <laughs> Wait, do you know something? I might know something. Do you know something? <laughs> I love that episode. <laughs> 
So they're like, okay, we know about you know about Angel. I know about Angel. Charles is like not terribly stealthy of him, and Will's like, he's lost, he's his, lost edge. his edge. <laughs> Angel was never incredibly stealthy. He really wasn't. No, he's like well, very also, clumsy. He trips as he, he comes was into the room. Trying to talk to Willow, he wasn't <laughs> yeah. trying to be stealthy. Like he right. wanted to talk to her. So they're like, okay, Buffy doesn't know. Okay, cool. Let's let's keep it where it's at. And then there's a knock on the door. Xander and Anya show up, and it's really interesting again. From a framing perspective, the the room is feeling more and more cramped because they they normally when they have a camera angle, they will only have like one person there for a profile shot. But a lot of times you have multiple people inside of the of the shot and it creates like this very claustrophobic feel. Um Xander is not doing well. Everyone's like, Are you okay? Except for Buffy, who's like, You didn't bring you rolls. You didn't bring rolls. <laughs> I love her so much. The spirit is going back to the museum. He's picking out all the bows. And then Xander, back at the house, he's on the couch with a blanket. They're trying to figure out what's wrong with him. Apparently, he went to the doctors, said he had a lot of symptoms that didn't connect. Basically, figure out that Xander has like every like old disease under the sun, but they really hone in on syphilis. I know. I'm like, there are other ones. Then they all start arguing again. Giles is being super snarky. Like, let's just give him some land. That'll clear everything up, which is just not aged well, is super insensitive. Um, Buffy tries to be the peacemaker and Sanders like, hey, can we focus on what's really important here, guys, which is I have syphilis. And Anya's like, oh, it's okay. It'll make you blind and insane, but it won't kill you. That's what smallpox will do. <laughs> I fucking love her. I was like, dang, she's the worst person to have comforting you when you're dying. Yeah, the worst I nurse know, maid. Right? Honestly, though, it might be helpful because she's giving all these facts that you don't know about. You can prepare. That yourself. is true. That is true. They are utilizing Anya very well in this episode. It's great. So then they're like, well, this spell looks like this might work. Oh, wait, no, that's the recipe for the stuffing. And Sanders like, oh, God, I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have the scene between Giles and Buffy. And I felt like we got a much softer version of Giles than we have with him and Willow, where he says the solution isn't pie and vengeance is also not the solution. It's it's a cycle. Hatred is a cycle. And I was like, yes, that's great, Giles. But I feel like Giles is conflating killing and stopping. Like he's saying, oh, we need to kill this spirit versus maybe there's another solution that we could look up that would stop him. He hasn't even tried. But I, yeah. I also feel like that shows such a complete difference between Buffy and Giles. Buffy is willing to do everything she can to stop someone before killing them. Whereas Giles is willing to do the quickest and most efficient way to stop mm -hmm. it, which a lot of times is killing. And I don't think that we've really come to a point where that type of method is not a good idea because up until this point, it's been like demons and vampires and all that, that it's like, there really is no negotiation. It's just killing. Um, but it's like, now we're starting to reach into that territory of like, Maybe not everything is so quick to be like, yeah, just kill them, you know? Right. And I really do appreciate that they put Giles' perspective in because I feel like that is a massive viewpoint that a lot of people hold today of like, why even try to do reparations? I wasn't the one that personally did all of the killing. Those people are gone now. Everything's done. Like, whatever. It doesn't matter. Like, it's not going to change anything. Let's just move forward. And there's often this misunderstanding that reparations means you always have to undo the damage done. But reparations can be as simple as using the power and authority you have to acknowledge the damage done. So you can move forward for the people that are actually here and that are living. I think recognizing atrocities and the systemic racism is a thing 
goes a huge, huge way in helping progress and move things forward. Trying to educate yourself, listening to indigenous people, committing to do better. I think the problem is, is that in this episode, both Buffy and the viewer are put in an impossible situation where the indigenous people are the villains. And if they hadn't been the villains, this wouldn't have been as hard of a subject that it is in the episode, which is just unfortunate. Then there's a knock on the front door. Buffy goes over there and it's And this spiked. reminds me of Friends too, right? <laughs> like when um, someone knocks on the door in Friends and they all count and they're like, who the hell is that? That's kind of exactly what this scene feels like too. They're like, we don't know anybody else. Like who could that be? Spike says, I can't hurt anyone. I can't bite anything. No one's listening to him. The only thing that lets him inside of Jazz's house is the fact that he has information about the initiative. And there was actually a huge scene that they cut from the episode. I don't know, Alexander, if you have this part or not, but they cut this like massive scene where they actually had Buffy and Giles invite Spike in. And it hasn't really been explicitly stated at this point because we keep when the show has been talking about how like, oh, you have to invite someone in in order to have them inside the house. But it is not until season five that we really recognize that it has to be someone who actually lives in the house, has to invite them. At this point, the show like hadn't made that distinction yet. And so this scene, I think they might've even had just Buffy inviting him in, which is really weird because she doesn't actually live in the house. Wait, but since it's an apartment, is it different rules? Since it's not technically Giles or Buffy's, he's just renting it? It's his name's on the lease. That's what matters. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, if you're going to cut out a scene, that scene kind of makes the most sense to cut. Um, yeah. But I just love how Buffy's like, oh, so you haven't murdered anybody lately? Let's be best pals. Like, if you know the rest <laughs> of the show, you're just like, oh, Buffy. <laughs> Yep. Well, I mean, again, if you know the rest of the show, this makes a lot of sense because he goes, I can't kill you. You can kill me as she has a stake to his chest. And this is in the deleted scene. Pretty cold-blooded of you. And Buffy presses harder. So like he's manipulating her like, hey, I'm defenseless. How dare you try to kill me? Which, okay, Spike. Okay. I feel kind of like they should have kept that in because a problem that I have with season four, I, I think Spike is just a joy, but it's why haven't they killed him? Yeah, like, I know yeah. right now they're getting information from him, but um, after they get the information from him, there is no use to having him around. So you're just kind yeah. of like, why is Buffy letting him live? So having Spike yeah. put that line in gives you kind of perspective of where maybe Buffy isn't killing him because he's harmless and... As Spike says, that's cold-blooded. I agree. I do like this one part right here. He Spike actually sees Anya for the first time. This is the first time they've met. And he says, who are you? And Anya goes, Anya, X-Man killing demon and Xander's girlfriend. And Spike goes, sounds about right. <laughs> Everyone has beef with Xander. So funny. Hus is preparing for war. He brings in some more spirits, some more people, and arms them with the weapons that he took, and they're now ready to attack Buffy. So now we cut back to Giles' apartment. Spike is now tied to a chair. He's like, bloody hell, woman, you're cutting off my circulation. Which makes no sense because he's literally a vampire. They're just very inconsistent with like, how vampires' bodies work, you know? Like, Angel doesn't eat. Angel doesn't eat food, right? Human and he's food, drinking coffee Spike, over on Investigating Angel. Yeah, but Spike <laughs> does. So 
Uh, Giles is like, something is not making sense. He's like, the victims, apart from Xander, he has targeted authority figures, Father Gabriel, the curator, who fits this pattern. And then they make the assumption that the dean is going to be the next person that they will hit. So then Willow, Xander, and Anya decide to go and like try to warn the dean. I actually have a quote um, from Wilcox about um, Buffy's perspective in this scene. So she says, I think Buffy is truly concerned about the plight of the shoe mask and the right way to react to Hus. At the same time, she is desperate for the comforting ritual of the holiday dinner. With Buffy's quarter cup of brandy interruption, which we haven't gotten to yet, but we will. There is the intrusion of the personal into the political. I would not say that the effect is to make a mockery of concern for the shoe mash. Instead, it makes mockery of the speaker, fond of her though many of us may be. The tonal shifts su- suggests not a debasement of the significance of the issue, but a weakness in Buffy, a very human weakness in a person many of us identify with. A weakness in someone who asserts conscientious consideration, God, so so much alliteration, for the social (laughs) issue, but who at this moment is more involved in getting dinner than righting wrongs. How many of us can claim to be much different? When I laugh at this speech, I laugh at myself, and I'm not really happy about it. I love that quote. I love. Did you write that quote down too? I did, but no, I'm glad you read that. I love that they they show that like it's very human. It's very human in that moment to be like, yeah, I wish I could undo this. But like right now, the pressing thing is I got to get Thanksgiving dinner and like that constant push and pull and how Mm -hmm. the pressing, like it's the whole tyranny of the urgent, right? We get so focused on what we have to do right then that we stop to think about other people and the things that maybe we could do to help. Like it's so easy to just whitewash things because Mm -hmm. we're so busy. And I think like I thought that was so interesting. I think Buffy um, is a perfect example of white privilege in this episode. Mm -hmm. I mean, in general, in a lot of ways, but Mm -hmm. in this episode specifically, because even like in that first scene with Willow, when she's like, I guess I never really thought about it um, in terms of like what Thanksgiving is really about, because she has the privilege to not have to think about it. She's coming from a place of ignorance rather than hatred, which is, you know, obviously very important distinction. Mm-hmm. I do believe that she's genuine, but she's also, you know, selfish, you know, she's dealing with her own thing. She feels lonely. She just wants to throw on a dinner because she's lonely. She's missing Angel. She's, you know, her mom's gone. And right now, although she does understand and care, it's still self-serving. Like I care about my own comforts first And I feel like that is just a perfect example of so many people. And I love that they included that perspective in the episode. And I love that they were brave enough to give that perspective to Buffy, who is, you know, the main character. Because she, everyone wants to see her in the best light. Mm -hmm. She's complicated. She's messy. And that's what makes her a compelling character, you know? All right. So the gang has left. It's just Buffy, Giles, and Spike doing research. Then the arrows come in. They are being attacked by the spirits. And then back uh, outside the Dean's house, Willow, Xander, and Anya, are, they're carrying some pumpkin pie that the wife gave, which is just hilarious. And okay, did you guys notice this scene? So they come up to the bike rack. And they're like, well, that was a waste of time. And Angel's like standing with his back to them. And as they come up, he just kind of like turns around and was like, hey, guys, 
And I was like, Angel, were you just like standing with your back to them? Like it makes no sense. He's just really like weird how he pops in in this episode. It's so dramatic and funny. He is hilarious. He loves he loves a good entrance. Um, but Jane Espenson also said that she had no control over which scenes Angel was going to be in. That's so weird for a writer to not have control. She said yeah. that Buffy is a it was very structured usually, but this episode was even more structured where they were doing the crossover and the crossover was just because that was a good time for both of the shows to do. And they literally came to her and was like, Angel's going to be in this scene. He's going to be in that scene. He's not this scene, but he's going to be in that scene. Like it was very specific. That would be so hard. That's so like messy. I don't know if they told her exactly how he was going to show up, just that he was going to be in the scene. And I'm pretty sure they didn't tell her exactly how he was going to show up. So it's like- And then she just has to like figure out a way. (laughs) Yeah. She's just trying to figure out a way to put him in the scene. And I think it's like- She's very inventive, and I think it's very funny and entertaining. But um, you're just kind of like, what? But at the same time, Angel is such, like, a dramatic bitch. Like, I love him, and that's what makes him so funny, you know? Like, he's, like, he's got to have his back turned and then have the dramatic turn and be like, Willow. Like, it's just, he's got to have his moment, you know? Every time he jumps in, everyone is like, wow. Okay, yeah, Angel's still here. (laughs) He also wouldn't hang out with them if he was evil. He'd be, like, off concocting his plan. Oh, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Did you guys notice the slip up with Anya being like, oh, so this is Angel. Like Uh acting as if she's not met him. They they saw each other in The Witch. In Doppelgangland. And in Doppelgangland. Yeah, that's right. Um, Also, though, she totally checked him out. Did you see the way she like looked him up and down? Like – yes. It wasn't. Tra- it didn't translate super well onto the scene, but in the script it says, "This is Angel. He's large and glory, isn't he?" And then it says, "Xander steps between Anya and Angel." <laughs> oh, they, he! I wish they would have included that. Of course, Xander would have insecurity about him being around Anya. I know, right? He's like, no, sweet, sweet revenge. The fact that Xander's girlfriend is checking out Angel after Xander hating Angel for so long—that's got a sting. So Angel's like, all right, all the weapons are missing. And then he's the one that says, hey, like they're going to go after someone in charge, a leader, and they make the connection. It's Buffy. And then he's like, all right, here, you guys, I'll help you get back faster. He literally helps them steal bikes. And I was like, guys, I just want to point out the irony of an episode that's all about how stealing land is wrong. And we're like, no problem, steal some bikes. Uh, It makes for a great, great moment, just like a few scenes later where we have like the Stranger Things gang. That's what I thought of too. I was like, this is literally like Stranger Things. I actually didn't think that and I can't believe I did it. Like it's so obvious now. So Buffy and Giles are under attack. Giles gets a phone call and he's like, yes, yes, well, we're well aware of that. We're under siege right now. Thank you. (laughs) Buffy's just like, who was that? And he's like, eh, never mind. Like he was Uh, starting to say angel. (laughs) Just someone. He's just hilarious. What I love so much about this show is just how it is such a blend of so many different things. It's so, you know, it can be romantic it can be scary it can be hilarious or it can just be soul crushing like it's so many things and just the comedy in it is just so effortless and rare like they really got lucky with like such a great cast and like such great Mm -hmm. writers like I just I love it sorry just needed to we've been being very harsh so I just wanted to put something nice (laughs) something positive yeah (laughs) okay 
Did you guys notice that Buffy gets an arrow stuck in one of her arms and then she gets stabbed in the other arm and yet the girl is like functioning like totally normal? I was like – I saw that too. I was like, okay. I wish they would explain like the Slayer's like healing powers because sometimes she's like – and I know it's like tied to her emotions, but I just wish that we got some little explanation. It would have been cool if it was like they told us everything is tied to the emotions like – or of uh, of the Slayer because that would be so sick. Could you imagine like in a fight, she's like feeling really down and she's getting walloped on and then all of a sudden she has like a click moment and then all of a sudden like she's like bouncing off all these like hits and it doesn't matter. That'd be so sick. Yeah, um, there actually is a line in season seven that I always think of or I'm going to say it because you guys don't have context so it's not really a spoiler but someone's talking about Buffy and they're like, yeah, I saw her and – I saw her and she still like looked really beaten up. And that was like the next day. That's what um, the line is. So basically it's implying that when Buffy is injured, she's usually healed up very quickly because in that scenario um, that I'm referencing, Buffy is like badly, badly beaten up. Um, So I don't think, honestly, I do not think she would be phased by an arrow or like just like a, slice on the arm I don't think so at all um yeah but I do think um Tabby in terms of what you were saying about um her strength um that's her emotions are very clearly tied up in her strength but the healing powers I think are just how all slayers are you know although we can admit that mental fortitude and your emotions do kind of play a factor in how we heal at times too but Mm -hmm. um anyway sorry for that (laughs) no that's very helpful thank you then we have Nancy, Steve, and the gang on you know the Calvary's arriving on their on their bikes. Giles is like, we need more help. I love that so much. So funny. So Xander, Willow, and Anya arrive. They're in the courtyard. Buffy's frustrated. She's like, Giles, these guys don't die no matter what I do. It's just not working. Uh, so Xander and Anya and Willow are using shovels and flower pots and doing everything they can. Angel arrives and starts taking them out. Thank goodness Angel was there. Um, So then we have Angel's point of view. He's looking through the courtyard. He sees that a warrior is creeping up on Buffy. He grabs the knife and whips it through there. Buffy doesn't even notice, doesn't even see. Um, And I think what's implied that that is the moment that Angel, that's why Angel was supposed to come into town. That was the moment where he was supposed to save Buffy. I don't know. I put in my notes because if he hadn't done that, his whole entire presence would have been a waste. Like there's no They needed to have that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Buffy figures out that the knife can actually harm the spirits, and then he turns into a bear. So there was an actual real-life bear that they brought onto the set for this. And if you guys go on YouTube and watch Jeff Pruitt, who's the stunt coordinator, watch his videos, there's a a full-on video where Sophia Crawford, who is Buffy's stunt double, she's actually doing the stunts with the bear named Bonkers in the studio. And because camera has a really hard time with depth perception – Like you can tell they were very careful with their angles, but she's actually standing a couple feet away from the bear and she's just kind of moving around and waving her knife. And they got a couple of shots to make it look like Buffy standing directly in front of the bear. It's pretty crazy. That's impressive. Yeah. um, Jane actually said that they, the camera people intentionally like had to take the shots very low to the ground because it was a baby bear. It was a very small bear. She said that um, Marty Noxon actually hugged the bear and everybody was like, this girl is insane. 
Because like a tiny bear can still claw off your face, you know? And the video, he does not look – he's bigger by far than Sophia Crawford, who – I mean, it's not a very big person either. They actually had a really hard time getting the bear to cooperate because he kept jumping up and down. He was so excited. Like he just kept like bouncing. And they were like, no, you have to look fearsome. And so they kept having to redo the takes because he was just jumping up and down, <laughs> which is actually really adorable. And Spike's like, you made a bear. Undo it. Undo it. And he's like still tied there. And Buffy's like, I didn't mean to. How funny would it have been if this was how Spike died? He got eaten by a bear. <laughs> That would be so embarrassing. All the times he escaped death and he goes out by getting eaten by a bear. Like, that would be, I mean, that would be hilarious. I'm sorry. Like, I like That would be really funny. That would be so funny. Or a random arrow to the chest. Like, all those arrows getting so close. Yeah. But then, you know, we'd all be like, you know what, guys? That was such a missed opportunity. Spike was just a phenomenal character. Could you imagine if he actually became part of the gang and then we'd all be reminiscing about, like, you know, how he died too soon? I would have to say at this point in the series, I would agree. Yeah. There, there would be a missed opportunity. Yeah. 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 This part of the series, I would agree. But the farther we get along with it, I might be thinking about that bear, you know? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, bonkers, come back. <laughs> All right. So Buffy finally stabs the bear, turns back into Hus, and then dissipates into mist, and all the warriors go as well. And everyone goes back inside the house except for Angel. And the script says, through the window, as she looks around at her friends, she's all right from Angel's perspective. And it says, Angel hesitates for a second, drawn to her, but he turns and walks away. Oh, I hate that he just leaves. It's so sad. You can tell he's like being pulled to go there. Yeah. I love the use of the word drawn. I think it's a Mm -hmm. very – It's. I love that. It's very true, but – I just love it. The longing, you know, the pain. Yeah. It says so much. So Buffy feels him as well, glances towards the window. Spike's like, did we win? All of a sudden, you know, he's on their side. Before it was like, you people like, need to apologize. <laughs> Spike, is like, Spike is in desperate need of like someone backing him. So everyone's sitting around the dining room table. Willow's like full of white guilt. Like, man, <laughs> how dare I attack these people that I was trying so desperately to, to save. Giles is like, meh, this turkey is great. Buffy's just like a little sad. And Giles is like, come on, you should be very pleased. And she's like, it wasn't perfect. Thanksgiving wasn't perfect. And Giles is like, well, we all survived. It's okay. It was your first Thanksgiving, Buffy. And Xander's like, my syphilis is clearing right up, like, <laughs> romantically to Anya. No one else is caring about <laughs> And Xander. they say romance is dead. Or maybe they just wish it. <laughs> <laughs> And Willow's like, maybe we started a new tradition. Then she's like, hmm, maybe we didn't. Maybe um, maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> and then she's like, well, we all work together. It was just like old times, setting up Xander to put his foot in his mouth because, of course, it would be Xander putting his foot in his mouth. So actually, in the first script, Anya says the line. Um, I was actually oh. going to say it seems more like an Anya line than a Xander line. Oh, yeah, you're so, right. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah, and then also in the original version of the script, the dinner failed and Spike is eating raw turkey while the rest of them go hungry. So <laughs> that was in the script too. That would actually be so funny. The fact that he's the only one that like eats food and everyone else is like, well. Yeah, and um, because he's like so starving. If you think about it though, Having Anya say that wouldn't have made sense because Anya wasn't around for when Angel was really around, so it wouldn't have made That's sense. That's why for they to be changed like, it. 
Yeah. I think that's why they changed it. Jane, uh, Jane said something like, you know, she wasn't really a part of the group when Angel was around. So yeah. they changed it to Xander. And then they were like, I mean, of course it would be Xander. And this final shot is just excellent. It's iconic. It's great. Just showing from the point of view of Buffy as everyone's looking at her. And it just feels very realistic to a Thanksgiving table where someone Mm -hmm. says something they're not supposed to. It's awkward. Everybody has different emotions. The angle is genius. It's just such an odd angle. I always pause it. I pause it to look Mm -hmm. at each individual expression because they're all so They're so good. good. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then we pan to black – and Xander's like, whoops, as we hear a like fork clatter to the to the plate. Does All right, Buffy, that is Pangs. Oh, good. Does Buffy say Angel? I I never hear her say that. Oh, maybe she doesn't. The script says that she says, oh, you know what? She doesn't. You're right. Because it, it just pans out and Xander says, oops, and oops. then that's yeah. it. Yeah. The script says she's supposed to say Angel, but I think they swapped it with oops. So I like that better. I like I do the oops too. better, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it leaves wow. it kind of ambiguous. We don't know how Buffy feels. Is is she mm-hmm. going to be upset? Is she going to be bummed out? Is she going to, like you know we don't we don't know. I guess we'll find. I don't out know. Soon I guess we're just gonna have to maybe tune somewhere to find out. Yeah. How she yeah. Feels, right. Can't can't imagine where. With that wonderful segue, we have investigating angel next week with I will remember you, which is you guys will want to tune in for this one. I love it. I love it. I hate it. It's a pang at the heart. Mm-hmm. Oh, very nice. <laughs> Excellent choice of words there. <laughs> wow. No, yeah. but guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Alexandra, thanks so much for joining us. This was an absolute yes, blast. thank you. So fun. Thank you for having me. I am touched and honored. But until then, guys, next week, tune into Investigating Angel where Leia – and I and Leah and Tabby will be over to talk about Buffy and Angel. You don't want to miss it. It'll be pretty great. And there'll be a couple surprises all that week as well. So until then, guys, you can find us on Instagram, on TikTok, on Tumblr at Becoming Buffy Podcast. You can email us at becomingbuffypodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your guys' thoughts of this episode. Do you love it? Do you hate it? Do you find it problematic? Who do you side with? We want to know all the things. As always, guys, we will see you next time. 